Hello, sports fans, and welcome to Let Me Speak, the show that shares sports' biggest headlines explained, uninterrupted, and maybe a little audacious. I'm Joe Braverman, and today's topics we'll be discussing are, as the first half draws to a close, who are the favorites right now for all major NBA awards? Plus, discussing the recent news and rumors in the NFL offseason, including J.J. Watt's new team. And a preview of the 51st annual Daytona Supercross. It's episode 16 of Let Me Speak, and it starts right now. Coming at you on Thursday, March 3rd, 2021, Let Me Speak, episode 16. 16 episodes, absolutely incredible, and this is a great time of the year. We're starting to see the warmer weather here in Massachusetts. There's not much snow on the ground, knock on wood. The vaccines are coming. This pandemic hopefully is coming to an end. We see the light at the end of the tunnel, so we're wishing for nothing but the best and speaking of wishing for nothing but the best we hope that the all-star game for the NBA this Sunday doesn't hit a major roadblock in this NBA season but so far getting through one half of the season is pretty good considering what other leagues have had to gone through especially the NBA early on with getting all those positive cases and having to postpone so many games so With the first half coming to an end for a lot of teams on tonight, I thought I'd take this episode to talk about who's really the first half award winners right now. Talking about MVP, Rookie of the Year, Coach of the Year, and all those awards. So obviously you have to talk about the MVP award. And I would say there's a top five right now in terms of who are the contenders. Right now, I would say the favorite for MVP is Joel Embiid from the 76ers. I mean, come on. Nearly 30 points a game, over 11 rebounds a game, and the 76ers are first in the East. That's what makes him the favorite, I think, is that the Sixers are at the top of the conference right now in the East. He's second in points per game, eighth in rebounds per game, and he's really become the centerpiece of that Philly team, which is ultimately leading to the best season of his career. And I think Doc Rivers and that Sixers organization did a great job of finally recognizing what would lead to success for the 76ers is that getting all the pieces surrounding Joel Embiid. I mean, you've got the perfect team of all-star teammates. You got Ben Simmons and then the near all-star Tobias Harris that I mentioned last week. You got a bunch of shooters in the offseason, Seth Curry, I should say, and Danny Green, where you get Joel Embiid in the post or Simmons driving. You just kick it right out. And then you also got defense with Dwight Howard and Matisse Thibel, just to name a few of them. But in going back to Joel Embiid, just when you watch him play, he just dominates the game. And it just looks like he has his way when it comes to the post. When you see him getting it in the post play, he's got the range, he's got the size, and a lot of comparisons to uh, uh, Hakeem Olajuwon. And just the way he works... And what he does with his game 
he's finally taking over and realizing that I'm such a great player. It's time for me to be the focus of this. I mean, he's first in the entire league in free throws. He's making almost 10 a game, and he's averaging attempts over 11.5 right now. So Joel Embiid has finally taken that brass ring and is going. And I mean it. He's going with this MVP award. So that's that's who's the favorite for me right now, is that the Sixers are playing well enough, and they have a top-five player this season in Joel Embiid, where he's my choice for MVP in this first half. But second, obviously you can't overlook the two-time reigning MVP in Giannis Antetokounmpo from the Milwaukee Bucks. I mean, this guy's always going to be an MVP candidate while he's playing at the peak of his career. I mean, fifth in points per game, fourth in rebounds per game. He's always going to be an MVP candidate with his kind of impact. Just the freakish athleticism for the Greek freak, the way similar to Embiid where he just takes over games. I mean, it is a tiny, tiny little step back compared to his last two MVP seasons, but it's still better than like 90% of the league. I mean, he's still one of the best two-way players that we've got in the game and really the questions for him we know how great he is it all comes down to the postseason similar to Embiid once we see getting success in the postseason we can get a little confident about where his career trajectory is looking off or if he's just this sort of not flash in the pan but one of those players where he's got the accolades but he's never got the ring kind of similar in the NFL to like a Drew Brees or an Aaron Rodgers. He's got all these milestones and records and numbers and stuff like that. But championships are few too many for them. But Giannis, the way he plays, I mean, in the post, obviously he's still working to develop that outside shot and that three-point shot. But where this Milwaukee team is, when you look at the Eastern Conference, basically the top three teams in Philly, Brooklyn, and Milwaukee have separated themselves. Giannis is in that, and with Brooklyn, there's just a lot of shuffling around right now. A lot of players have sat out and not played in many games, so the constant in that top tier of teams in the Eastern Conference is Giannis. That's why he would be second in MVP voting for me, because yes, it's a down year, but we're judging it by his career and what he's done. He's making he's not making a ton of noise like he has in the past two years where Milwaukee's sitting on the top of the Eastern Conference. That's the only thing that might not be giving Giannis all those votes is the fact that Milwaukee is third in the East and not first like we've seen in the past two seasons. But there's still time to improve for Giannis. But for right now, he's the number two pick in MVP voting for me. Now, in number three, the slot, I'm putting Damian Lillard right there. I mean, this guy, the way he takes over games and comes up clutch in game time should not be overlooked. He's number three for right now. I mean, third in points per game, eighth in assists per game. And it kind of compares me, the season that he's having, to what Stephen Curry did in his first MVP season in the 2014-2015 season, where... He was kind of getting recognized as, okay, maybe he's one of the better players in our league. And then he's starting to take over. And he's putting up phenomenal numbers like Steph Curry was. And he's giving the team success. Not like Warriors' success to where they were number one in the West in that year. 
but the Blazers are mid-pack right now, but they're winning because their injury problems have been totally hurting them, if not for Damian Lillard's incredible play. No C.J. McCollum and no Yusuf Nurkic. Those two are probably your number two and number three options. And so what Lillard has been able to do in taking over the games, I mean, he's basically third in three-point shooting, but arguably I'd say he's one of the top two three-point shooters that we have in this game today. Now, Portland would, I'd probably put him, if Portland had a better record, I would say Lillard would be my favorite right now. But the way that things are going, the way he's basically lifted this Portland team and kind of kept them out of the cellar would definitely give me his votes. I would definitely vote for him considering what Lillard has done in this game, in this season. And what Damian Lillard has been able to accomplish while dealing with these injuries for Portland and keeping them afloat, I say you got to give him some votes. You have to give him some votes the way that he's playing this season. So Damian Lillard, number three in the MVP rankings for me. As for number four, I mean, this one's kind of a given. LeBron James, I mean, come on. 25 and a half, eight rebounds, nearly eight assists. I mean, he's carrying this Lakers team without Anthony Davis. And the argument was about their injuries and if he's playing too many minutes. But, I mean, come on. This is LeBron effing James. You never doubt this guy for one second. I mean, the way he's able to adapt his game at 36 in his 18th season of his career, the way he's adapting and he's opening up his three-point shooting, I mean, it's absolutely incredible to watch. And mark my words that the game will be missed once he's retired. It's going to be a completely different ball game when LeBron James retires. I mean, he's having his best three-point shooting, I would say, of his career at 36 years old. And what he's doing for this Lakers team, I know they have a ton of depth, but Anthony Davis is your second best player and maybe the most important player on this team. Because we've seen what LeBron has done with a not-so-great roster in Los Angeles with his first year in the Lakers. I know he had some injury problems, but still missing the playoffs. Anthony Davis is the most important piece for this Lakers team. And what LeBron James has done with him on the sidelines, the way he takes over games and is keeping the Lakers near the top of that Western Conference, give me LeBron James as an MVP candidate yet again. And I know he was the favorite. He was the favorite earlier on, but he has taken a step back. We've seen the rise of the Jazz and the Clippers are coming along and the Phoenix Suns, teams like that. So he has taken a couple steps back, but he is still top five in my MVP rankings. Then for number five, let's give some love out to Denver and the Joker, Nikola Jokic. This is probably one of the best seasons by a big man in recent memory. I mean, eighth in points per game, 11 rebounds per game, which makes him 11th, but sixth in assists per game. And I think outside of Shaquille O'Neal, and depending on where his career goes, he's probably the second best passing big man to ever grace this game. 
I mean, I would say it's one of the best all-around seasons to remember. Not only that, he's fourth in steals, steals per game. But similar to Damian Lillard, the Nuggets aren't at that top tier. And if they were, then I would say it's a no-doubter. I would say it's a no-doubter that Jokic would be the MVP if Denver had a better record. Like, depending on what records would go with, I would say Jokic, then I would say Embiid, and then I would say Lillard. But because of the Portland record and the Denver record, those guys aren't as high on my list as originally thought. But Nikola Jokic does deserve MVP votes. Depending on how the second half would go, he could easily get into that top three. We're only talking from the first half right now of the season. So there's still plenty of basketball to be played. And for a ton of these guys to be shuffling around, and who knows, maybe we see guys like Luka Doncic, where the Mavericks start improving their record, and Doncic gets himself into the MVP category. Maybe if the Celtics get better, we see Jason Tatum or Jalen Brown. Maybe Zach Levine or... I'm just rattling names right now. They might not even get any MVP votes come the second half. But that's my top five for right now. Joel Embiid's my favorite, followed by Giannis, Dame Time, LeBron, and the Joker. Those are my top five first half MVPs. Now, for the second award for the NBA Rookie of the Year, I mean, this one, pretty obvious. You got to give it to LaMelo Ball from the Charlotte Hornets. I mean... What he's doing for that Charlotte team. He's leading all rookies in points, rebounds, assists, and steals. That's four categories among every single rookie that is playing in the NBA. And when you look at what he's done recently, probably in the past, I'd say, month or so, he's fifth in the NBA in steals, and he scored over 20 points in the last five games for Charlotte. Over 20 points. He's already got a triple-double on his resume. And I think he's making the biggest impact for all rookies right now. Because Charlotte, with the combination of him, their recent signing Gordon Hayward, and a surging, very surprising surgence of Terry Rozier, this Hornets team can make a postseason run. And when you put LaMelo Ball in, this is only his rookie year. And I think ultimately... Out of the three Ball brothers, LaMelo's going to have the most success because it looks like he's just got the most talent. The most talent. Because what he's doing right now at a very young age in his first season with Charlotte, I had mentioned that he might not be the perfect fit for the Hornets because he's a great player, but we don't know the direction that they're in. I think we understand now what direction Charlotte's going in right now because they're contending for that 7th and 8th seed in the Eastern Conference. And I would say largely on the part of LaMelo Ball. Credit, he's not going to be the leading scorer every single night for Charlotte. But it's kind of similar to the situation in Philly. You've got a top scorer in this scenario. It would be Gordon Hayward because he's that centerpiece for the offense. That's why they signed him from Boston. But then you have that secondary player for Philadelphia. It's Ben Simmons. But for Charlotte, it's LaMelo Ball because he can score, he can pass, and he can rebound. But the difference is LaMelo Ball can shoot. LaMelo Ball can shoot. Ben Simmons cannot shoot. Either he can or he doesn't want to. I don't know. But LaMelo Ball clear-cut his day rookie of the year in the first half. But then right behind him at number two, I would say is Tyrese Halliburton from Sacramento. I mean, he's second among rookies in assists and steals 
And he scored in double digits in all but six games that Sacramento has played so far. Six games. And in the month of February, he scored over 20 points five times. So he's probably the best shooter to come out of this draft at this moment. Because Sacramento, yeah, they're not having a great year. But with the strides that Halliburton is making, combo him with De'Aaron Fox. That's a great backcourt you want to have. And if Sacramento can retool a little bit, maybe we could finally see them get back to the postseason. Obviously, LaMelo Ball is head and shoulders above all the rookies right now. But Tyrese Halliburton is probably the second best rookie right now to be playing. But then at number three, this might surprise some people, James Wiseman. He's second among rookies in rebounds, and I credit that he hasn't played in as many games as most rookies. But the impact that he's making for the Warriors, Golden State finally found their center of the future. And I would say the winning ways for Golden State is partly contributed to this guy right here, James Wiseman. Because he's the perfect fit for this Warriors team when you have Steph Curry and you have Andrew Wiggins, Kelly Oubre, Draymond Green, all of those pieces for a retooling and a rebuilding team. Now, he hasn't played enough, I would say, to be a real strong contender. But for right now, in terms of impact, I would put him at number three for Rookie of the Year. And then on the outside rookie in, this might be my Boston bias catching in but Peyton Pritchard he's got to be an honorable mention the way he's just thrusted himself into the Celtics rotation and then Anthony Edwards from the Timberwolves he's finally getting his legs under him took him a while but he's finally making an impact for Minnesota also known as the worst team in the Western Conference but I digress on to coach of the year I think, again, this one's a no-doubter. Quinn Snyder from the Utah Jazz, the league-leading Utah Jazz. Now, I look at it in this sort of perspective. When you look at the Utah Jazz and the way their roster is constructed, they are not the most talented team, not the most talented like the Lakers, who have a ton of depth, or the Brooklyn Nets, who have a ton of all-stars. But they have the best team chemistry. All the pieces that they have is exactly what you're looking for. Every single piece that they have. And I mentioned it last week. You have Donovan Mitchell, Rudy Gobert, Mike Conley, Joe Ingles, Royce O'Neal, Bogdanovich. I mean, you name it, they've got it. They have got it. Jordan Clarkson, I totally forgot about him. Jordan Clarkson, right now, sixth man of the year. That's another one that we're really not going to get into because that one's pretty obvious. Sixth man of the year, Jordan Clarkson for sure. But this Utah team is just so well constructed, and Quinn Snyder's got them playing at a phenomenal level where he should be the coach of the year. He really should. No questions asked. And then number two on that list, I put Monty Williams from the Phoenix Suns. Now, there were a lot of questions after the bubble, because the Suns did go 8-0. They went undefeated in the bubble back in the summer of 2020. And a lot of people are saying, okay, is it a fluke? It's clearly not. It's clearly not a fluke. Because you brought in great pieces like Chris Paul and Jay Crowder. Put them with Devin Booker, DeAndre Ayton, Dario Saric, Cam Johnson. I mean, it's 
amazing what this Suns team has done. The complete turnaround that they've done from being in the cellar of the Western Conference to now being a playoff contender. And they're sitting in top three, top four in the Western Conference right now. So I want to give a ton of credit to Monty Williams because he has bounced around so much as an assistant or head coach, but it looked like he finally found his home in Phoenix. And then number three, we'll go to the Eastern Conference, and let's give Tibbs some credit. Tom Thibodeau from the New York Knicks. Folks, this is no hype, but the New York Knicks are back. They are back because, like I had mentioned a couple of months ago in my episode with Johnny Mansaridis, the Knicks finally have some respected leadership in that locker room. And right now the Knicks are sitting in the fifth sixth spot, like the mid-pack in the Eastern Conference playoff picture. And what Thibodeau has done with a team that credit might not be similar to Utah, the most talented team, but he's brought out a career-best year for Julius Randle. He got a veteran presence in Derrick Rose and Nerlens Noel. You have R.J. Barrett, who's finally coming into his own in his second year. The New York Knicks are primed to make their first postseason since 2013. And I'm giving all the credit to Tom Thibodeau because he is getting the best out of every single player. I totally forgot to mention Emmanuel Quickly, the rookie coming off the bench, having a great year, a great year for the Knicks. So I want to give some votes and some credit to Tom Tom Thibodeau. And briefly, I touched upon a sixth man of the year, Jordan Clarkson, with the Utah Jazz, no doubt about it. Defensive player of the year, let's give it a Rudy Gobert. I mean, he's playing great on both ends for the Jazz. He's a two-time winner. The only one I could see maybe getting past him is Embiid, possibly Joel Embiid, sweeping the MVP and the defensive player of the year. But then more debate for the most improved player. I really think it's down to two players, ultimately. It's down to Jalen Brown and Julius Randle. Now, for me, so far, I would go to Jalen Brown because he's got the biggest jump to stardom. He went from 20 points a game a year ago to now 25 points a game, and he's got himself knocking on the door of star status. He cemented himself as all-star status, and then you'd think the next jump is to superstar status with the combo of him and Jason Tatum. And not only that, but he's got a ton of confidence now in his shooting his ability to drive to the basket, and his leadership as well has grown into his own playing alongside Jason Tatum. So right now, I would say Brown is the favorite. Second favorite, Randall, because like I said, he's got a career year for the Knicks, and he finally gets the role of top option in New York. And we're seeing how well he's able to play when he's the centerpiece for an offense, which is what Julius Randall is and that's why I would put him second on most improved player. And then a sneaky third one I would say is Donovan Mitchell because we're seeing the jump into superstardom. Like I said last week, he's very close. He's not there yet, but depending on this postseason run that the Jazz go through, I would say then he gets to superstar status. But the way he's increased and he's finally got people talking about him as a superstar because he's been overlooked basically since his first year in the league as such an important piece for that Jazz team. That's why I would give my credit to 
most improved player for Donovan Mitchell. I'd give some of my vote, votes for that. So that's what the first half awards look like. Luckily for NBA fans, there's still a whole second half to be played in the NBA season. Moving on to the NFL, we're still kind of in a quiet lull right now for the NFL offseason. Basically, everything are just noise and rumors. We have the franchise tag deadline coming up this Tuesday on March 9th. So we're still waiting to hear who's going to get tagged, who's going to be in the free agency picture. But there's still some big news going out there. Some big news and rumors. Obviously, the biggest one has to be J.J. Watt finally making his decision, and he's decided what team he's signing for. And he's going to sign a two-year, $31 million deal with the Arizona Cardinals. The Cardinals. And honestly, I was completely shocked in seeing that the Cardinals were even a contender to sign J.J. Watt. Because they didn't even make the playoffs this past year. They just had a whole collapse. But you kind of get it from the sense of, Arizona was looking to improve defensively so they could keep up with Kyler Murray and DeAndre Hopkins. So you sort of see how it makes sense. But it's just we didn't hear like the Cardinals team, their name coming up here in J.J. Watt. We were hearing Bills, Steelers, all that, Browns. I never would have picked the Cardinals. Now, this might not be the best option for J.J. Watt if he's going to go ring-chasing for a Super Bowl. But I mean, it's a good option nonetheless. I mean, it's it's better than Pittsburgh. It's better than the Steelers, but I would say it's worse than the Bills. So it's like mid-pack right now if he's looking for contending. But I mean, the defensive line is going to get better. It's already going to get better with what? I mean, last year in 2020, they were tied for fourth in the NFL in total sacks. You bring JJ Watt on that line, it's going to get much more than 48 sacks. It's probably going to be more, depending on also what they do in the offseason. Because the Cardinals, they still need to shore up that defense. They got a ton of options on defense. I think they got to re-sign Patrick Peterson and Drake Kirkpatrick, their top two cornerbacks. And then you got to get Hassan Reddick back in. There's a ton of defensive pieces that should be the priority for Arizona to team up with Watt. That's really the big key for Arizona is if you can get some of those pieces back. Like Patrick Peterson, he's the veteran. He's got a ton of leadership. That combo of him and J.J. Watt is going to be huge in the locker room for a ton of these young guys. That's absolutely huge right now. And what I also thought about was with DeAndre Hopkins, the two Houston teammates reuniting, and it just really makes you feel bad. For Deshaun Watson, because he's stuck in Houston right now. He's watching all of his former teammates go on and have fun on other teams. And it really just brings up the question, where is Deshaun Watson going to land? Because ultimately, I think he will get traded at some point. But this could be a James Harden-esque situation where he holds out or he just doesn't put as much effort into this team 
as he should just to force his way out. I really think that could be the case if Houston doesn't make a trade come training camp for this upcoming season. Now, the sources have been saying that Watson's preferred destinations are the Miami Dolphins or the New York Jets. But you have to look at it from the Texans' sort of viewpoint. You look at Miami. You see that they've got a bright future right now with a ton of weapons. They have more assets than the Jets do right now. A ton of more assets. They have much more to offer. And then it will just come up to Miami of do they gamble the future? Because if Miami's going to make a deal, Tua Tagovailoa is going to be in that package. He's going to be in that package because there's no way you're going to have a roster with both him and and Watson as your quarterbacks. you got to have one. And Houston's saying, you know, we need a bright future. And obviously Watson's not committed to the future, so we know someone who for right now has a very bright future, and that's Tua. Let's get him over here. So Tua's going to have to be in that package deal for whatever Miami has to offer him. But does Miami take that gamble? Do they gamble on an extremely bright future with Tua, what he did splitting time with him and Ryan Fitzpatrick, or do you take the chance and get an established quarterback who led the league in passing? Honestly, for me, it's really 50-50 right now. 50-50. Me, I would keep Tua because you've got much more potential there. It's still just hard. It's hard to tell. If, If I was... Brian Flores in that Miami organization, I would hold on to Tua right now unless some magical deal comes along. Because I think I think Tua is going to be special, and I think you need to give him a few more years. It's similar to the Josh Rosen situation. Obviously, Rosen's a completely different quarterback than Tua or Watson in where he got traded around so much, and he never really got an opportunity to showcase his talents. Now, obviously, he's labeled as a bust, Josh Rosen. But this is a different situation where where you have organizations basically playing the waiting game. They don't want to win now. They want to win later on. You just got to take your chances and see where this thing goes if what you're predicting about the future is completely right. So I would say for right now, Miami should hold on to Tua because he could be a very special talent. He could be a very special talent. Watson's already a special talent, but I think for Miami, if you have someone who's as captivating with his personality like Tua is, I say that's going to help your organization. It's going to start help your franchise. And for right now, I would say hold on to Tua Tagovailoa. So Houston's probably going to have to look for some other trade partners outside of Miami and outside of New York. Now, the other quarterback that we've heard making a lot of noise in terms of movement is Russell Wilson. Now, we've reported a couple weeks ago, a couple episodes ago, that Wilson was really uncertain about his future. And what we've gotten in the past week is from his agent basically saying, Russell's okay in Seattle. He's okay in Seattle, but if he wanted to get traded, he has four specific destinations he would like to get traded to. He would consider a trade to the Dallas Cowboys to the New Orleans Saints, to the Las Vegas Raiders, 
and the Chicago Bears. Now, I would have said earlier on, I had here in my notes, that every team except the Raiders really makes sense. But in hearing reports about Derek Carr, that there might be a little bit of friction in Las Vegas about the direction that the Raiders are going in with John Gruden, then it starts to to make sense a little bit. But I still don't see Russell Wilson going anywhere this offseason. Maybe give him another year, possibly a trade deadline in 2021, and then maybe more stronger consideration in 2022. But in looking at where these other teams, what they have to offer, Dallas, it's pretty simple. You swap Russell Wilson with Dak Prescott. And for Dallas, you have to decide if you trust that Dak Prescott is going to come back 100%, if he will take a pay cut, which clearly he's not going to because he wants $40 million a year, would Seattle be able to take that cap hit? Would they want to bring in Dak Prescott for $40 million a year? It's a tough decision for Seattle because they're not they don't have to upgrade anything on the offense. It's all defensively that Seattle needs to upgrade. We don't know about that. For Chicago, if they can get Russell Wilson, that would thrust them right up there with the Packers in terms of being contenders in the NFC North. Right behind the Packers. But I think for a package deal for someone like Russell Wilson, Khalil Mack might have to be in there. Because like I said, Seattle's trying to get better defensively. And Khalil Mack will do that times 100 if you could put him in the deal. And then for New Orleans, you're still waiting and seeing what happens with Drew Brees. If he retires, if he doesn't retire, what is the quarterback situation going to look like for there? And it would be really hard to see what New Orleans could offer. Obviously, they have a ton of weapons. Michael Thomas, Alvin Kamara, Cameron Jordan, those kinds of guys. It's really hard to say what New Orleans would offer Seattle in a package deal to get Russell Wilson. But like I said, these are still news and rumors, and we really won't know what will happen in the offseason after the franchise tag deadline this Tuesday. segment number three and it's been a couple of weeks since we brought this segment back but it's the secret sport love that i have it's monster energy supercross and there's a very important race coming up so i thought it's only fitting that before this historical race we preview it in our segment known as rev it up So Monster Energy Supercross, it's coming near the halfway point of their 17 race schedule, and they are headed to the famous Daytona International Speedway for the 51st running of the Daytona Supercross by Honda. Now, the way this works is that the track is set up in the grass area of the Tri-Oval for the Daytona International Speedway, and this is a very difficult track because you get lap times that are over a minute, probably about a minute 10, a minute 20 most years. And it's got different types of dirt, sand, grass. Uh, that makes it really taxing both physically and mentally. And the design this year 
and every year is designed by the Monster Energy Supercrosses version of the GOAT and five-time champion Ricky Carmichael. And the way the series heads into Daytona is we have Ken Roxon riding Team HRC Honda, currently leading at 180 points. He is leading Cooper Webb, who's on Red Bull KTM, by six points. And then in the Monster Energy Kawasaki, Eli Tomac is in third place, trailing by 31. And then the Troy Lee designed Red Bull Gas Gas, Justin Barsha, is down by 44 points. Now, the past couple of weeks, they just had a week off. Before then, it was two races down in Orlando, Florida. And Cooper Webb did a great job of winning both of those races. And it really put him in the hunt. Now, not only is he riding good, but he took advantage of a ton of opportune moments. In the first Orlando race, he passed two guys, one of them including Ken Roxon early on in the race. While those two were battling, Webb kind of snuck in the back door and was able to pass both of those guys. And then the second Orlando race, he was able to get a much better start than Roxon, who had a really poor start and only got up to fourth place. The point deficit was at about 20, and now it is down to 6 thanks to that. But if you ask me, I think Roxon still looks like the fastest rider on the track. He's putting it all together. I mean, he hasn't finished outside the top 5 just yet this year. And really, it was just the bad start in Orlando. He even said it himself. He got a really bad start. He could only work his way up to 4th place and... That really opened things up in the point standing. So this is a big race for him. If he can get this win, and he's never won at Daytona before, if he can get this win, this will sure himself up back as the favorite. Because around this time last year before the pause in the season, because they ran up until Daytona, then they had the pause for the pandemic, and they got back to racing in May. And he even said himself he wasn't the same over those two months. But he has never won Daytona. And last year he had the points lead. And it was really this Daytona race that sent him downward. And opened the door for Eli Tomac to take over and eventually win the championship. So this is a big race right here for Roxon to get his first win. Because he had swept all three of the races in Indianapolis. In the last time we had brought this segment back. So... It's really going to be important that he takes this win and he takes back control of the points race. And for Cooper Webb, he's just got to keep doing what he's doing. He's got to make those passes early on so he can run his own race. Because Roxon just looks really fast and really good. And his corner speed looks great. I think Webb, he's got to keep winning. Because Roxon's going to continue to be consistent. And not only if he can win, but if he can at least finish in front of Roxon, that would be absolutely huge. And the way things look right now, it'll come down to those two once we hit the finale in Salt Lake City in about another two months. Now, I briefly mentioned Eli Tomac. Eli Tomac just hasn't looked the same this year. Uh, the defending champ, normally this this is when he really gets on a groove but the defending champ, he's down by 31 points, all right? And this almost feels like the perfect race for him to get back on track because he's only got one win this year. Normally at this time, he's got about three or four. And 
This is the type of race that he loves. He's won four out of the last five Daytona races, including the last two. And he this race is so important and very difficult to win multiple times that in the past 50 races, Tomac is only one of 11 riders in history to win multiple. And he is actually tied for second with Daytona wins with the legendary Jeff Stanton and just recently the former four-time champion Ryan Villapoto with four. And he's one away from the aforementioned Ricky Carmichael with five. So this is a track that he loves and this should get him back on track. If he's going to win anywhere, it's got to be here. And he's usually a slow season starter. Usually takes him about this time where he really starts to find his groove and gets into it. He just might be too far behind. Unless a disastrous finish from Roxon or Webb and a win for Tomac, he can get right back into things. But some other riders that you might want to look out for in this race if you're going to watch it, watch out for... 2020 motocross champion Zach Osborne on the Rockstar Energy Husqvarna because he's the defending outdoor champion from this sport and this is a very much outdoor track like I said dirt grass sand it's got a lot of outdoor features so this might be the opportunity for Osborne to get his second win of his career and another name you might want to watch out for Cooper Webb's teammate on Red Bull KTM, Marvin Muskan. The French rider has looked really good these past few weeks. He's gotten the podium two out of the last three races with a third and a second. And he missed all of last year due to knee surgery. And it's been a little bit of a slow start for Muskan, but I think this could be a great time for him to get back into things and get his first win in almost two years, I would say. For Moosecan. He's looked really good the past few weeks. If we have our championship leaders maybe falling back a little bit, they struggle on this Daytona track, Moosecan could easily be there to pick the bones and grab his first win of the year, maybe get himself in the championship hunt because he's sitting fifth in the points, still a little bit of a ways back. But if he continues to ha- get on this good trend, Moosecan might find himself in that championship picture. So it'll be this Saturday night, Daytona, Florida. The 51st Daytona Supercross. It's going to be a very historical and incredible night at the Daytona International Speedway. So now moving on to a special edition of Let's Get Local. I've got a very special guest joining me here for this segment. He is a writer and producer for 98.5 The Sports Hub. And you can also check him out with Alex Leibowitz on his own podcast called known as Calling It. Please welcome Alex Barth. Alex, how you doing? Thanks for joining the show. How's it going, Joe? Thanks for having me. It's good. Now, I should also mention we go very back. Uh, a couple weeks ago, I had the one and only Jimmy Young on the podcast and oh boy going back to our young broadcasters of america days so just trying to trying to recapture the glory days if you ask me yeah I, no i you know what it's funny i saw on youtube the other day kind of some of those videos we used to do uh, uh down in natick back in the day in needham and uh, you know i got a little nostalgic we were really lucky that you know trying to get into this business we had an opportunity where we could go once a week twice a week 
do a show. You know, there was an element of legitimacy to it. So uh, I'm certainly not where I am. If not for that, you know, there, we got other people too out there. Lauren Screedens working for the Chicago Bears. TJ Horgan, who was a buddy of ours, just interviewed the governor of Hawaii yesterday. He's out there. He probably got the best job of all of us because he's <laughs> in Hawaii full time. Um, but that was like, uh, no, that was that was pretty cool that that we were very lucky to have that. And uh, it was very cool to work with you and some of the other people we got to work with there. Yeah, it was definitely a ton of fun. I'll never forget those days. So on calling it, you dive into a lot of Boston sports. So I thought, who better than to talk, let's get local, than with a guy who does it basically every week, similar to myself. So first off, we got to talk about the Boston Celtics because they're coming to the end of their first half. Their last game will be tonight against the Toronto Raptors. So I just wanted to get your overall impressions. What would you say – about the first half of the Celtics season and what are your overall assessments? Yeah, I, I think, you know, a lot of people want to talk about the Celtics are better than they played. They're worse than they played, whatever. I think we got a pretty accurate depiction. This is a good, not great team that that's streaky and they can, you know, show up on some nights and beat the best teams in the league. And there's other nights where they don't show up against the bottom feeders of the league. And I think that, you know, Kemba Walker is a big part of that, his inconsistency, and I understand why that's a thing and why he can't play every night, and they have the long-term picture in mind, but this is, you know, since they first brought in Brad Stevens and made those Brooklyn picks, I would say this is the worst Celtics team, not necessarily the Brad Stevens era because he had some stinkers to begin with, but uh, of the Tatum Brown era for sure. And it doesn't mean they're bad, but – you know, in the past couple of years, it's kind of felt like the Eastern Conference Finals were more or less a lock. They were going to be one of those Final Four teams going in the NBA. It's hard to see that this year, especially the way they've played against some of the lower teams. And if they end up a four seed, does Indiana, when they get healthy, you know, and they get Karis LeVert back, that's a real series. That You, you can't walk through that series, so we'll see. Um, I, I, I think the Celtics are what they are. They can be a fun team some nights. They can be a frustrating team other nights, and you know, any, any talk about a potential title or flipping the switch like this isn't, you know, Danny Ainge, he said this now two weeks in a row to touch on Rich. He invokes the 2010 season where the Celtics were 500 through the first three months. And then they flip the switch, right? And they go on to the NBA finals where Kendrick Perkins tears his ACL. They lose to the Lakers. That team had Kendrick Perkins, Paul Pierce, and Ray Allen and Rajon Rondo. This, this isn't that team. This team, I don't know that they have that flip, that switch that they can flip when they get to the playoffs. So you know, we'll see. Things can change. The deadline's coming up, but I'm not, you know, in love with the Celtics team by any means. Yeah, I totally agree. There's a ton of inconsistencies with this team. Overall, I'd say it's about like a C plus B minus sort of team that there is. And it all goes back to what Danny Ainge has done with this team, constructing this roster. Like I said, previous times, they seem a little bit too young. They don't have a ton of size in terms of what their roster i mean robert williams is six eight and he's quote unquote their big man and you have daniel tice who's six nine and tristan thompson's six ten so they just don't have size down low and they're just they're too young right now i would say like you're asking guys like peyton pritchard or shemi ojale to really be the offensive force off the bench you can't do that that's why you always got to have one of the big three like Tatum Brown or Walker in the game because they're really your only consistent offensive weapons right now. But I would say recently, most notably in these past three games, they've looked better. We're starting to see a healthy Kemba Walker. We're starting to see 
uh, Robert Williams really take a step. I was very skeptical on him, but I think he's been playing great these past couple of games. And I mean, 32, 21 and 25 for the last three games for Kemba, all of them wins. He's finally coming into his own and they're still not fully healthy. you got to remember that we're still waiting to see where Marcus smart comes back in the second half. And I've said before that they just, without Marcus smart, he's the engine kind of basically. And you take out that engine, the car doesn't go. So once he comes back, you probably might see a big twist. But for the Eastern Conference, though, like it's not as completely stacked as it was. So they're sitting in fourth right now uh, where we're recording on this day on Thursday. And they're basically first in that pack of teams that are completely close, like the Knicks, the Bulls, the Pacers, all of that. So there's a ton of shuffling going in. And it just takes like a two-week stretch of winning four out of five or something like that for them to get back into things. Right, but the important thing to remember is this is a team with two top 20, two top 25 players, depending on how you feel about Jalen Brown. They were until they won the other night. They, so they were one of seven teams to have multiple All-Stars. Of those seven teams, they were the only one to be under 500. Now, to me, that's a coaching issue. But, you know, to talk about leaning on the Stars, clearly that hasn't worked. You talked about, you know, guys having to play above their role. Jeff Teague's supposed to be the, you know, the eighth, ninth guy off the bench. Suddenly you're without Kemba and Smart and he's your sixth man. And that can become a problem. Absolutely. Um, You know, you mentioned Robert Williams. I think he's been good. The size thing has been an issue as long as Brad Stevens has been here. I just don't think him and Danny Age believe in it. They have a six, seven center. That's a problem. That's always going to be a problem. I know it's new age basketball, but the positionless basketball thing to me, to the extent Brad Stevens tries to do it, doesn't work. It's still basketball. Height still matters. Maybe not as much as it used to, but it still absolutely does. I don't know why Robert Williams isn't starting. I don't know why he's not playing 30 minutes a night. I get they're worried about his hip, but, you know, there's ways to make that work. I just think in terms of going forward with the standings, like you talked about, this isn't a team that should be in a conversation with the Chicago Bulls, the New York Knicks, right? Two perennial joke franchises. When you have players like Jason Tatum, Jalen Brown, Kemba Walker, You'd like to think they can put a run together, get into that upper echelon. The other interesting thing, and this is more like Marcus Smart coming back is going to help. I'm a huge Marcus Smart guy. I'm not dismissing his absence, but the one thing I look at, if they do want to turn around in the second half, they are now 10 and five at home in seven and 12 on the road. And that's been a trend this year. There's only two teams in the entire Eastern conference who are over 500 on the road. I think just with COVID and everything, Going on the road is even tougher this year than it's been. The Celtics played more road games than any other team in the NBA through the first half. The second half of their schedule is going to be home loaded. So, you know, was that a trend at that home road split? Was it, was it a trend or was it, is there actually something to it? Because if that's the case, the Celtics are going to have a chance with fans coming back in the building as well to clean up on some home games and maybe give themselves a run. So Marcus Smart coming back certainly helps, but they still have issues, whether it be size in the paint, whether it be bench shooting, uh, whether it be Kemba Walker's durability. Like, like these are things that Marcus Smart doesn't fix that they're going to need to to overcome. It won't be as rough at times, but to me, I look at, can they capitalize on those home games down the stretch? If they are going to put themselves in position to be in the conversation with the Brooklyn Nets, with the Philadelphia 76ers, they're going to have to, they have, I think it's like 23 home games down the stretch. I want to say that's, uh, you know, about that number. 
they've got to win 18, 19, 20 of those 23 home games down the stretch in order to do it if they keep being the team that they've been on the road, which I think is more likely to happen. Yeah, and I mentioned it last week that they're going to get a lot of, I would say, walkover teams in terms of like, we're talking Houston, Oklahoma City, Cleveland. Those teams are going to come up more on the schedule. But I've said long for basically weeks now that roster construction by Danny Ainge is the biggest thing right now on top of Brad Stevens coaching. And we actually just found out earlier today that there are a couple of trade targets that the Celtics are looking for at. They're looking at Nikola Vucevic, the all-star from the Orlando Magic, and they're looking at Jeremy Grant from the Detroit Pri- Pistons. Uh, do you see them as maybe good fits that the Celtics can, can go after? Yeah, I, I think Vucevic is an interesting fit, probably a better fit of the two. I just, and I get people are excited about Grant, and I get why. He's averaging 24 points a game. He's, you know, a freak athlete, that kind of thing. But a couple things you have to keep in mind. He's 28. You know, he's not that young. He just signed a, a three-year, $60 million deal. So if you trade for him, this isn't a rental. This is a long-term thing. He's going to be, you know, that's your starting five at that point. Kemba, Smart, Tatum, Brown. And, and, and Grant, like that's more, not, maybe not your starting five, but that's your best five going forward here for some time. But, you know, prior to this year, he never averaged more than 13 points a game. So I just, you know, it's going to cost a ton to get him. You're buying absurdly high. I just don't know that the risk, because what's more likely, he continues being a 20-point-per-game guy through the rest of this contract when he's 29, 30, 31 years old, or he reverts back to the guy he was, you know, mid-teens scored, nice bench piece. Do you want to give up serious assets for that guy? Vucevic also having a career year, but it's much more, you know, it's not massive career year. It's much more in line with what he's done. He's at, and I just wrote about this, uh, you know, this morning for 98.5thesportshub.com. He's at, I think it's 23 and 11, 23 and 12, something like that. He's a better fit for both what they need and what they do. He's a big who can, you know, step outside the arc at times. But again, he's on the second year of a four-year $100 million contract that's going to be a serious investment. So, you know, you're talking about with either of these guys, you know, giving up the TPE, certainly. You're talking about Robert Williams probably has to be on the table. And, and you mentioned how good he's looked and, and what his potential is right now. Uh, Romeo Langford's probably on the table. You might have to put Marcus Smart on the table. To get one of these guys, you have to change the core of your team. And when you look at what the Celtics roster is right now, are they worth changing your core to make a run this year? I would argue no. I don't think this team is worth selling legitimate assets to get, look, they're good players, Grant Vucevic. They're, they're, they're not superstars. They are, you know, third, fourth, fifth tier guys when if you get to the offseason, you might have a chance to go out and get a guy who's on a higher tier, a guy like a Bradley Beal, right? If you blew those assets to get Jeremy Grant and that means you can't get Bradley Beal if he suddenly becomes available. I mean, that's a major mistake, right? And I know people have been kicking Danny for not pulling the trigger and for having this wait-and-see approach, and I think there's validity to that. But, you know, that doesn't mean that right now is the time to suddenly make a move just to make a move. The TPE is worth more in the offseason. You'll have a better chance to rebuild your roster. I just – I think anything at this point for this team, I'm not adding anything that costs more in a second round pick or looking in the buyout market and just spending cash. I I'm not investing heavily in this team because I don't think they have what it takes to go over the top. You know, the other problem is you talked about the roster construction. 
the, the defense of the TPE when they traded Gordon Hayward to Charlotte instead of go, trading him to Indiana and getting Miles Turner, who, by the way, is a freaking stud, um, was that, you know, it's essentially a player to be named later. The TPE is going to turn into a player. It's going to turn into a good player. You just have to be patient. And that wasn't the worst defense at the time. But the problem is, and I, I always thought Gordon Hayward was overrated going back to Utah. But he's still a good player. He's a starting caliber NBA player. As we now know, this team couldn't afford to lose a starting caliber player. So, yeah, the TPE might turn into somebody, but the damage has already been done. The curtain's kind of been pulled back on what the Celtics are. You know, does, does Miles Turner make them a, win them a championship? Probably not. Does he get them back to the Eastern Conference Finals? I think so. And then the illusion stays where the Celtics are this hot up and coming team and, and, you know, they're young players on the rise. Now there's, you have these problems developing and, you know, does it push free agents further away? Does it disillusion Tatum and Brown with the Boston organization? And we know that, you know, if an NBA player becomes unhappy, they're going to get traded. So there are roster building issues, certainly with this team, I, I, I think first and foremost, but, you know, taking a desperate spring at Jeremy Grant, as good as he's looked this year at the deadline, that's not how you fix it. You're going to end up long-term digging yourself into a deeper hole. I think they need to be patient. And then when you get to this off season, use that TPE, you know, put everything on the table outside of Brown and Tatum and see if you can make a splash then. I think the biggest thing though, for the Celtics team is probably since the, the Kyrie Irving trade a couple of years ago, it's always like, okay, they're a year away from being that great team, but it feels like it's been that way the past like four or five seasons. Like when you see, Oh, what this team did without Kyrie and without Gordon Hayward, look what they did. They were one game away from the finals and beating Cleveland. Then the next year they have all this talent healthy bounced by Milwaukee in five next year. After that, they lose Kyrie and they drop in the Eastern conference finals again. Now this year, similar great team, but not healthy. And they just don't have the roster. So it's like, they're always, everyone says, Oh, next year, they're going to be great. Next year. They're going to be great. I think a lot of people, maybe you and me included are just like sick of being patient. You know what I mean? They're, everyone's saying like, be patient, be patient. We've been patient for about four or five seasons. So we're just waiting. I agree. What you say about Jeremy Grant, he's probably not the greatest fit and Vucevic. He's still kind of like iffy right now. So maybe, waiting out on the off season will probably be the best thing because Danny H said himself, this roster is not made to win a championship. Now, if you're going to give up on this team right away in the first half, when right now they're sitting fourth in the conference, if you truly believe that you can get a full postseason run out of this squad, then you go get Vucevic depending on whatever kind of options out there. If not, just leave the roster as need be. But there's still a lot of questions for this Celtics team. But keep in mind that Tatum and Brown are still young. They're still very, very young. I, I don't even think they've hit 25 yet, either of them. So there's still plenty of time for, for them to really make the adjustments and for Danny Ainge to finally put some pieces around him to build on some success. But... One of the uh, other Boston teams that's doing really well are the Bruins. And I don't know if you saw that game against the Capitals last night. That yep. was a lot was of, that was a, yeah, a lot of fun to watch. Very physical. They get to do it again on Friday. And to me, I still think there's room to improve. What do you see with this Bruins team? Because 
I really started becoming believers after that Lake Tahoe game. And I, yeah. I, re- I saw your Twitter at real Alex Parr. Some of the tweets you were putting out yeah. were absolutely incredible. Their outfits, like they just, your points were like right there. Um, I, but really for me, that. yeah, I started believing uh, when they pulled off that big win in Lake Tahoe. What do you see out of this team? I think the Bruins are what they've been for the last few years. They are one of, if not the best team in, in hockey for the regular season. But the question is what happens when they come to the playoffs? This core, you know, and I, I know they won one in terms of Bergeron, Marshawn, and Rask, but that was, you know, an era ago. They were not Bergeron, maybe a little bit, but outside of him, you know, Marshawn was a penalty killer, but he was a, a role player on that team. Rask didn't play in the playoffs. Krejci had a, a sizable role, but wasn't, you know, that team was led by Tim Thomas, Zdeno Chara, Milan Lucic, Mark Recchi. Like those guys are not here anymore. This core, the Bergeron Marshawn core, this is what they do. They go, you know, balls to wall in the regular season. They're one of the best teams and they get to the playoffs and something just happens and they stumble. And we're seeing David Posternock do that now as well. I'm not saying it's going to happen again. They've had some unfortunate circumstance, whether it be injuries. Uh, I think COVID last year, like they just had so much momentum. And then, you know, four or five month layoff, you're going to lose that. But I'm, uh, they play very exciting brand of hockey. They play a very fun brand of hockey. They certainly have their gaps. You know, the blue lines was young to begin with, and now they're banged up. And there's some struggles there. And I think they're missing Chara there. You know, they got to kind of figure out what they're doing on that fourth line is Jack Studnika going to be a part of this team? Is he still too raw? Um, you know, can you afford to have Trent Frederick, who is one of my favorite players on the team right now, but you know, if you go into a scoring drought, is he a guy you can afford to have out there? They, they have their questions, but they are as complete of a team as you're going to find in hockey right now. I just, I can't get overly excited about the title hopes because I've seen it time and time again, where, you get to the playoffs and they just don't look like the same team. You know, Pasternak stops scoring, Marshawn stops scoring. Uh, you know, the blue line kind of falls apart. We all know about Tuka Rask in the playoffs, as good as he is in the regular season. And I think he gets a little too much criticism, but I, I'm not at the point where I can be like, yeah, you know, are they title contenders? Sure, absolutely. But it's just so hard to get excited about it with them because of what they've done in the last few postseasons. Yeah, I'm totally on that same point is that it's good to watch this team be successful now, but in terms of the postseason, it's still like a wait and see. I totally agree that I mentioned last week defensively, they've still got a ton of gaps right there. They're still a little bit young. They have a ton of injuries they're dealing with. And then adding on losing Charlie Coyle because he's going into the COVID-19 protocols. Absolutely. It's definitely going to hurt, but I think they have – a great brand of hockey, the way they, they play, like you mentioned, they're, they're energetic, they're physical, maybe a little too physical. I don't know if you saw Trent Frederick against Alex Ovechkin last night. Yeah. See, I, I don't have a problem with that. You know, that's what Marshawn was when he first came up. Cause he wasn't the elite offensive player. He is now, I think he wasn't bad, but he was the pest, right? That's, that's how Brad Marshawn started. And frankly, he doesn't need to be doing that anymore. They need him out there scoring goals. Having somebody else to kind of add that edge, especially when Kevin Miller's out, I think is a good thing. The Bruins have always won, just like the history of the franchise, they've always won when they play like a-holes, right? That 2011 team would punch you in the mouth and then laugh if you punched them back. Like that, they haven't had quite that presence 
over the last few years. They've certainly been tough, but David Pasternak is a guy who can score but still be physical. Brad Marchand, obviously, is a guy who can get under your skin. And then you add Frederick, who's just a lunatic. I mean, trying to fight Ovechkin, trying to fight Tom <laughs> Wilson, trying to fight P.K. Subban. I mean, the guy's never seen a fight he's not interested in. And he's going to get himself knocked out eventually. But, you know, I don't – I have no problem. I, I think they need to play to that physical level. When you play to that physical level, especially when some of your key offensive pieces, Bergeron, Krejci, uh, you know, are, are a little bit older, it's going to take some of the pressure off those guys. It's going to cause teams to think twice to start to bang those guys up. And when you get older, you kind of feel each hit a little bit more. I have no problem with the Bruins' level of physicality. I think that, you know – like I talked about before, where I'm just hesitant to to fully get behind it because of what we've seen the past five, six years. One of the reasons that I'm not totally out on them is that physicality is different. You know, I look at, okay, well, what could be different this year? What could change this year that it doesn't end like the last few years have ended? That physicality is a big thing that sticks out to me in that, you know, they got the 2019 cup. They got bullied out of the building by St. Louis. They did. They did not have the physical edge in that series. And it showed up pretty blatantly in the final result, you know, even against Tampa last year and Tampa's not, you know, a bully team, but I thought they didn't quite have the physical edge against Tampa. I feel a lot better this year about them going into any given series and having the physical edge. I think they should uh, embrace that nastiness they're playing with. And I hope it, it sticks around. I think what sometimes gets difficult is when you have someone who can bully you right back, like, yeah, the Capitals, they weren't completely bullies like compared to them last night, but at the same time, they were still like hanging around. You saw Tom Wilson, so, Oshie. Right. Yeah, I, team, I would guys like that where of, Frederick's yeah. get, getting like, he's getting like, he's dropping his gloves and Ovechkin's just standing there like, I ain't going to fight you, or he's going to take a stick to the groin. And but, but that's the thing. And this is kind of a specific example, and it didn't ultimately work out, but this is what you like to see. Right. So after, after they tussled, right. The first time Frederick and Ovechkin, he gets under Ovechkin's skin enough that he gets the stick to the Nards. And all of a sudden there's matching penalties. Right. And that was late in a close game. There were, were there five minutes left? It might've been under, it was right around the five minute mark in the third period. I would say, yeah, it was near in, those closing stages right. in a one, one game. If you lose Trent Frederick, who again, I love the kid, but is not doing you much offensively. And the other side loses Alex Ovechkin. Like you take that. That's that's a major advantage. If you have a guy who can get under a, the skin of a guy like Alex Ovechkin and take him out of the game for two minutes in the key moments, like that's huge. They that, That's the thing. Yes, they're going to have teams that punch them right back. But when you have a guy like Trent Frederick, who's on the fourth line, who's basically there just to do that. And it's kind of becoming a lost role in hockey. Like, that's a difference maker. That's a huge difference maker. Even if he does, even if Ovechkin doesn't take the penalty, it's clear. Frederick, this, this nobody, this child, gets in the head of the great Alex Ovechkin. That's worth something. That is absolutely worth something. So this is where, so like you said, you know, sometimes teams are going to hit you back. This is where the problems were the last few years. It's not that they weren't physical, but they had no counter to the counter. They would be physical. And then if another team could one up the physicality, they were just like, oh, all right, it is what it is. This team doesn't do that. They're going to keep punching back. They are not going to stop punching back. And that's huge. Yeah, it's going to be one of those unwritten stats. And I got to tell you, I'm definitely going to tune in Friday night when they play the Capitals again. Because if it was physical, oh, yeah. if it was physical last night, it's going to be that times 10 on Friday. The, the question is, 
does Frederick actually fight Ovechkin? And it's not so much, you know, for the casual hockey fans, it, it it's not so much that Ovechkin doesn't fight because he's a superstar, right? Like Crosby doesn't fight, Subban doesn't fight, you know, um, uh, you know, a lot of these guys don't fight because they're just, they're superstars. They can't afford to come off the ice for two minutes. Um, that's not Ovechkin. Ovechkin doesn't fight because he hurts people, right? <laughs> he walked, he, he knocked Svechnikov last year in the playoffs, right? Against Carolina. He knocked him out of like, not, not knocked him out of the game, knocked him out cold. It's like Chara, right? Chara didn't, it's not that Chara didn't fight because he was a superstar. Chara didn't fight because nobody was dumb enough to fight Chara. So, you know, let's see, you know, I, I'm sure they're swollen. I'm sure Trent Frederick's, uh, you know, little Fredericks are swollen, but let's see just how big they are. And if he comes <laughs> in and fights Ovechkin Friday night or, or Tom Wilson, I mean, he's not, he's fought Wilson before. So that one's not as dramatic, but I mean, these are two guys who are, they can hit. They can yeah, punch. I'd go, I'd go and, over and again, under on Fredericks two are fights. Rookie, so I'd, I'd go over under on two fights between these two. So it's going to be, it's going to be a lot of fun right. to watch on Friday. Now in getting off of the on field on ice action, Let's talk about the Patriots and what they have in store for free agency. Obviously, we know what they struggled with, and that's offense. And clearly, it sounds like offense is going to be the number one priority. Alex, I just want to know your personal expectations. What do you think the Patriots should do in this offseason? So I guess what I think they should do and what I think they'll do are two different things as is usually the case. And look, I don't have six ranks, so what the hell do I know? But I, I, I keep the whole offseason to me hinges on there was a report from Mike Reese and Mike, Mike's not wrong. Like when Mike says something, he was, it's not necessarily that, you know, if he said it, he heard it. Now he might've been fed information, but if he said something, he heard it and he had that report and, and other guys who are, you know, tend to get things right. Tom Curran backed this up that the Patriots are going to be uncharacteristically, uncharacteristically aggressive this offseason. So what does that mean? And now you're stuck in this whole, you know, what, what the meaning of is, is conversation, because I hear they're going to be uncharacteristically aggressive to me. They're going to trade up and take a quarterback. They're going to pay a pass rusher. They're going to like, like, you know, pay a pass rusher, not just bring somebody in, but a top flight pass rusher. They're going to pay elite money for an elite pass rusher. They're going to go out. They're going to sign multiple wide receivers They're going to trade for a tight end. Like that's what I hear. But then aggressive can also mean, cause you have the follow-up report from Reese that they want to have the quarterback situation figured out by free agency, which by the way, is in two weeks here. Maybe aggressive means they have the same off season. They usually have. It's just sped up, right? Instead of signing the fifth best safety in the free agency class, two weeks in a free agency, they sign him two days in. So that becomes the question. If they're truly going to be aggressive by the truest definition of the word, that to me is drafting Trey Lance or Mac Jones, and then going out, not necessarily signing Allen Robinson, because, you know, but, but spending $25 million on a wide receiver, you know, just signing Allen Robinson for 25 million doesn't help you because then you have nobody else teams, double Allen Robinson, you're back where you were last year. To me, it's go get a $15 million guy, right? Go get Juju for 15, go get Corey Davis for 10, go get Rashad Perryman for four or five, right? Go out, trade for Zach Ertz. Like go get the top tight end on the market that you can realistically get. I don't think they can get Henry, but they should be in play because again, aggressive, aggressive. You know, Hunter Henry says he wants to play for a winner. He wants to play for an established quarterback. Well, you know, it's really easy to say that when you don't have a, a $17 million a year offer on the table, right? See how much he means that if you're the Patriots. If he doesn't, if you offer him the most money, he doesn't pick you. 
you know, that is what it is. That's the reality of it. Not every team signs every free agent they want. They sign maybe 10% of the free agents they want. That number is probably high. But, you know, make the best offer to Hunter Henry. Make the best trade offer for Odell Beckham Jr. Make the best trade offer for Zach Ertz. Be aggressive with the Gilmore trade. Don't just, because they're going to have to trade him. Don't just, you know, send him out for three-fourths and think you got creative. See if you can get Michael Gallup out of Dallas. See if you can get Michael Thomas out of New Orleans. Like, these are all things that are kind of out there, but not unrealistic, right? Dak Prescott is a guy I've been banging the table for. I'm not sold that he's the quarterback of the Cowboys next year. Does he become a free agent? No. If, if, if it goes south, they'll tag him and trade him. They're not going to let him walk for nothing, but, you know, no team should offer more for Dak Prescott than Patriots should. They have the assets to do it. There's no, and if he does by some stroke of luck hit free agency, blank check. You know, I think Dak Prescott's a hell of a quarterback. Is he top five? No. He's probably in the six, seven, eight conversation. So go get that guy. Go get a real established quarterback. That's where it starts for me, right? If you're running it back with Cam Newton and Jared Stidham or Cam Newton and maybe you pick up like Kellen Mond, one of these day three quarterbacks, or, you know, if, if it's Marcus Mariota, Jimmy Garoppolo to me is like a worst case scenario. Andy Dalton, like you're right back where you were last year. You're going to be seven and nine without a quarterback, which is the worst thing you can be in the National Football League. They've got to either go out and get a starting quarterback or go out and build up the rest of the roster so that next year they can draft, they can trade up, draft Phil Dracovic, and then hit the ground running. Like that's what they got to do. It has to be a different kind of offseason. Absolutely. I totally agree. And it was almost like this past season was basically like a gut check saying like, okay, doing what we've done in the past clearly isn't going to work. Right. But what I've been hearing and seeing, they're not sold on any quarterbacks who are in free agency right now. I think they get a quarterback in the draft. Like you mentioned, Trey Lance. We're hearing a lot of Mac Jones um, with that 15 pick. If they don't trade up, they'd select him there. I don't see a problem with it. You know, just taking a chance on a Alabama kid. Obviously, Belichick and Saban are going to be in contact about him. So I don't see anything wrong with picking up either one of those quarterbacks. And then if we're talking free agency, um, obviously, as you said, Allen Robinson is going to be that number one. Um, But if you're looking at sort of like discounted guys, like you were talking about in that sort of realistic scenario about aggressive for the Patriots, you have veteran guys like Golden Tate, Adam Humphreys, Willie Sneed, guys like that who are still out there. There's like a, a, a an in-between there. I don't think, again, I, Robinson, I'm not spending my whole wide receiver budget on Allen Robinson. That's not worth it. That's, you know, you know, if you make it, it's just not what you want to do. But at the same time, like the guys you just mentioned, those guys are cast-offs. I, I used to love Willie Sneed. Trust me, I was a big Willie Sneed fan. Like those guys' careers are pretty much over. It's, it's the guys who are a step below Robinson, but are going to get like eight to $9 million less per year because Allen Robinson's a brand name. It's the Corey Davises. It's the Juju Smith-Schusters. Uh, you know, Chris Godwin, if he becomes available, that one might be tough, though. You know, um, th- those sorts of players, Brashad Perryman, is probably on the lower end of that spectrum, but a guy I'd look at. Uh, I'd even go as far, you know, if, if Marvin Jones becomes available, you can probably get him for $15, 16000000 million. Again, you're better off. If you're going to spend $25 million, Marvin Jones at fifteen and Corey Davis at ten is a better result than Allen Robinson at 25. It just is because well, the thing, the thing though, is that the Patriots need a number one. Are those guys number one wide receivers? I personally would say no. So there, I, I, I think Marvin Jones is a one. He's not a one. Like to use a baseball analogy, right? 
is he an, is he a number one pitcher in the rotation? Yes. Is he an ace? No, probably not. But the the thing is, if you add the ace, right? If you add Allen Robinson, he's a number one wide receiver, and then that's it. What's going to happen? Teams are going to double cover Allen Robinson, and then you're back where you started last year, basically. Like it's probably a little bit easier. You can probably move the ball a little bit better, but you're still going to have a number two corner on Jacoby Myers. He had a good year, but he's not quite that good. Edelman's still a major question that you're relying on. And then you're just hoping to kill Harry makes a jump, right? All you're doing is just, like all your receivers were number three receivers last year, basically. So even if you add Allen Robinson, you still have a number three receivers. You're number two. If you add, you know, let's say they add Corey Davis again, the guys I'm going to talk about, because on, on Patriots beat, I host with Evan Lazar. This is the situation we've thrown out a number of times. If you add Corey Davis, if um, you add Brashad Perryman and you add, I'll throw Adam Humphreys in there, right? And then you have Jacoby Myers, your fourth wide receiver. All of a sudden, is any are any of those guys great? No, none of them are top tier wide receivers, but you're also in a position where you have the defense spread out. If they put too much focus on one guy, you're going to be able to attack, to attack elsewhere. That's how the Patriots operated for years. And granted, they don't have Tom Brady, but if you draft a guy like Mac Jones, he can run this kind of offense in that you're going to pretty much have single coverage across the board. If you have Ertz, Davis, let's let's go with Ertz, Davis, and Schuster is another one. Like you can put these pieces together however you want. You need three of them. If you have Ertz, Davis, and Schuster across the board, those guys, you're not doubling anybody. If you double anybody, you're going to get a number three corner on one of those guys. They can all beat that coverage. Even Jacoby Myers then is your fourth option is going to be able to beat that coverage by having just, you know, depth, like talented depth at the wide receiver position you make everybody incrementally better because the coverage is lessened on everybody. If you go from having, right. So they, they had four number threes. Even if you go from that to having four number twos at that point, most of your coverage, you're winning most of your coverage matchups. If you have four number threes, right. One, two, three, four, you're losing, you're, you're losing. Essentially you're at a disadvantage at one through three. Okay. If you have all twos, you suddenly flipped that and now you have an advantage more often than you don't. So, and then you go out and you try to get the big name guy, you know, if, if they add those guys and then they trade for Michael Gallup, now you have a real offense. If they can maybe figure out a way to trade Nikhil Harry for Hollywood Brown, which I don't think is unrealistic and you can kind of fix what's wrong with him. He's not a number one, but he has number one potential certainly. So I just, you know, I think the idea of getting that ACE receiver, it's it, they have too many other needs to worry about that. And they can win Josh McDaniels offense. And I'm somebody who's critical of Josh McDaniels, but one of the best things about his offense is you don't need an ACE receiver to win. You need it to put up the gaudy numbers, right? The only Brady's MVPs came with Randy Moss and Brandon cooks, arguably the two best true outside receivers he ever played with. So that's not counting like Edelman and Welker, right? But his rings all came when, again, you had that collection, you had Troy Brown, David Patton, David Givens, you had, Chris Hogan, Danny Amendola, Brandon LaFell. None of those guys are aces, but they made it work because having so much talent spread out spreads the defense out. Yeah, I'm totally I'm totally on that point. It's it's funny when you see the Patriots with all this money, basically every scenario is on the table. Like your scenario, my scenario, everyone's scenario that they have. It's all on the table. I also do think, like you mentioned, the tight end, they probably got to get a target there. I'll throw another name. You said Zachary, it's Hunter Henry. What about Kyle yeah. Rudolph, who just hit the market? I know he's expressed interest. He might not be the top option, but if you're spending all this money on 
pass rushers and wide receivers. Why not get him for a little bit of a discount? He has obviously hasn't been the tight end that really gave him his name out in Minnesota. But let me prompt you to this with what we're hearing about what the organization has been like, the friction in the past couple of years with Tom Brady, Bill Belichick, stuff like that. Do you think free agents might be a little reluctant to want to sign there and to go into sort of that system that Belichick and Robert Kraft have made? Yeah, I think that storyline's overrated. Look, I get the Stafford thing, but to me that was more about Matt Patricia than anything else. That was a specific instance where he saw Matt Patricia do this horrible Bill Belichick impersonation for three years and probably thought, you know, even if it's close to the real thing, I don't want to deal with that. So I, I get that. The whole concept of players hate Belichick and they don't want to play here. Like, look, are the Patriots as attractive as a destination without Brady? Absolutely not. If Brady was still here, J.J. Watt's probably here right now, if we're being honest. But they still have one huge advantage that, you know, only two other teams have. And that's money. They are one of only three teams with only $60 million in uh, projected cap space. At the end of the day, money talks. You know, you know, are you going to get the veterans trying to win a ring? Are you going to get the James Harrisons? Are you going to get, you know, the Ted Washingtons? Those are two very different names. I get it. But, you know, are you going to get <laughs> those kind of guys who are trying to come in and, you know, grab a ring late in their career. No, those things, again, you know, a guy like J.J. Watt, we would have talked about a ton, uh, you know, two, three years ago. Those situations are off the table. Vaughn Miller, those situations are off the table. But you're going to be able to have the best offer for just about any player, at yeah. least initially and at least this year and maybe next year. So that's still, you know, people are kind of sleeping on that advantage. It's really easy. And we saw this with J.J. Watt, right? He said he wanted to go play for a contender and play for a winner and try to win a Super Bowl. Cardinals aren't bad. They're probably the third best team in their division. They're not, you know, a, a immediate Super Bowl contender. But when you have a $15 million contract and a $25 million contract on the table, it becomes a lot harder to say, yeah, I want to play for a winner. You know, I don't care about the money. Like, it's a lot harder to say that when the money's in front of you. So, again, it's up to them. And this is where that aggressive thing comes in. If they're still going to nickel and dime people like they did with Brady, it's going to be a miserable offseason. It's going to be a miserable – it's going to look like the Red Sox, right, the interest kings. But if they can recognize this new advantage in this changing landscape and, you know, yeah, if, if uh, you know, pick, I don't know, any free agent they need. Um, you know, they need a linebacker. People have talked about Matt Milano, right? Matt Milano is probably going to get 12 to $13 million on the open market. If they recognize they need Matt Milano and he would be a solid addition, you know, is $15 million an overpay? Probably a little bit. If that, that's the difference to bringing him in, is it worth it? Absolutely. Like they've what never about Kyle done Van that Noy, possibly. Kyle Van Noy just so, hit the market. Right. Kyle Van Noy's kind of a different situation. You shouldn't need to overpay Kyle Van Noy because the pitch is right. So the NFL cap tanked this year because of COVID. It came down, it never happens. And what you're going to see across the league is a lot of one-year deals because players don't want to sign their big contract this year. They want to sign it next year when the cap goes back up and teams have a ton of money. So the pitch to Kyle Van Noy, and this isn't to like, you're not wrong in that concept, but you just happen to pick a very specific example. <laughs> the pitch to Van Noy is, hey, we got you paid last time, right? You came here. We knew exactly how to use you. And Van Noy has raved about how Bill Belichick knew like the exact way to maximize his skill set, right? You came here. We, we maximized your skill set. You got $15 million a year for Miami. And again, he didn't get cut because of performance. Van Noy didn't. You just say, come back one more year. 
we'll do it again. We're going to put you in your old role. You'll succeed. You go back out next offseason, you'll get another $15 million. So that's the pitch to Van Noy where you, I don't think you might need to offer like good money, but I don't think, you know, they can probably be in the top three and still be competitive. But let's say Chris Godwin's another one. Like Chris Godwin becomes available, right? And I think that might be a stretch, but Chris Godwin just won a Super Bowl playing with Tom Brady. It's going to be tough to get him to New England. But if you're going to give him maybe an extra year and $5 million more than anybody else, like that's the only way you're going to have a chance of getting him. You need to be able to do that. Yeah, it's the big $60 million question. And you had briefly touched upon the Red Sox. That'll give us our last subject, talking about what their season looks like because they're starting to get into their spring training. And I got to watch a couple of the spring training games against Minnesota and more so against Tampa. And this team, I think, is going to be a lot better than people think. I'm not going to give them the World Series expectations, like I mentioned, but this roster, it's still... It's still got a couple of improvements to make, but for right now, it looks okay, like especially Kike Hernandez. And we now obviously know that this is what the roster is going to look like because Jackie Bradley Jr. just signed with Milwaukee uh, in the wee hours of the morning. So I just wanted to see what are your impressions and what are you looking forward to for this Red Sox team in 2021? They should be better. They should be competitive. They should be fun. The, the starting pitching as it was last year, you know, is it pitching is always important, but I think with this team, it's, it's such a huge question. The average team over the last 20 years uses nine to 10 different starting pitchers in the, over the course of a season. And the Red Sox have, I think six or seven guys right now with major league experience. So obviously those numbers don't add up now, whether that means they're going to use more openers, right. And bullpen days, or we're going to see some of the prospects, you probably get a little bit of both ultimately, but you know, when does Chris Sale come back? How healthy is Eduardo Rodriguez? Like after them, the rest of that starting rotation is just full of question marks. So they need those guys to be active, be pitching, be in the lineup, all of that. Offensively, you know, you hesitate a little bit with big spring training numbers because pitchers are, you know, they're just trying to find their location again. Guys might be working on new pitches, stuff like that. So it's easier to hit in spring training. Uh, it's not to diminish, you know, what some of these guys have done. Obviously, Kike Hernandez off to a hot start. And it's good. You know, you pick up momentum. There's nothing wrong with that. It's just you want the right context. It, you know, it's a lot different hitting off a guy in March than it is in July. But, uh, you know, I, I think there's some upside to this lineup, certainly. Honestly, what I'm most excited about is the prospects. Some of the guys we'll see probably in, like, July and August. Um, I was, you know, I worked in, on, on the Cape in summer of 2015. And then I, I worked for the Little Spinners for two years. So, you know, some guys that I just know uh, are coming up. Jared Duran's the name everybody wants to talk about. I was in Lowell his first summer there. He's a very, very exciting ball player. I Here's my, my pitch on Jared Duran, and it's very important, that, like, you know, the context. Jared Duran, to this point in his career, has hit a lot of the same benchmarks and had the same sort of arc that Mookie Betts did to that point. Now, does that mean Jaron Duran becomes Mookie Betts? No, probably not, right? That would be insanely rare, but he's kind of following the same trajectory. And even if he ends up, you know, 70% of the player Mookie Betts, you have a legitimate starting MLB outfielder. So, you know, it's like, he's like Julian Edelman in 2012. It was ridiculous to say Edelman could be the next Welker at that point, but there was nothing to that point to disprove it either. So you couldn't totally take it off the table. Um, but, you know, he's definitely, he, his swing still needs some work. Um, he's like, I mentioned the Mookie Betts trail. He was drafted as a second baseman, moved to the outfield in Lowell. Cause it was just the only way he was getting in the lineup. He wasn't a highly touted prospect. He kind of came out of nowhere, 
So he still needs to work some work a little bit in the outfield, but he's a very exciting player. Um, we saw a little bit of Bobby Dahlbeck last year, a guy who I got to see on the Cape with the Orleans Firebirds, you know, big power bat. They kind of need another one, especially if J.D. Martinez isn't going to fully rebound. So he's somebody to be excited for, um, you know, and then Durbin Feltman out of the bullpen is another guy I saw in Lowell. So, you know, throughout the year, I think what's going to be cool about this team is some of the new faces we get to see. And ultimately with the Red Sox, I wrote about this last month for 98.5thesportsup.com. With the Reds, especially with the retirement of Dustin Pedroia, you know, the Red Sox have never, haven't had a cornerstone in a while. Xander Bogarts is the closest thing they have, but, you know, you had guys like Ortiz, you had guys like Veritek, you had guys like Dustin Pedroia who were just here for 10 to 12 years. And you see guys like, like uh, Mookie leave, a guy like Jackie leave, right? Um, uh, and it's just, you know, there's been so much fluctuation in the organization because of the way Dave Dombrowski ran things. And the Red Sox, because of what Dombrowski did and the big market team, fans are used to just spend all the money, put a contender together with short-term pieces and run back at it. And that's not, you know, an invalid point, but there's a way to do, you know, the Red Sox were good for like 15, basically for like 10 years under Terry Francona and and Theo Epstein. And then things kind of got wonky. And then, you know, in the next decade after that, they had six first place finishes or, or sorry, four first place finishes and four last place finishes. They, they got all over the place. And I think what High and Bloom is doing is working back towards ha- building a consistent team, having some cornerstones in place that, you know, even when you're a big market team and you spend, 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 you're not going to win every year. The problem has been for the Red Sox is that on those off years, the roster is completely barren. They've had nobody to kind of carry them through those transitions. And I think Bloom's trying to get it to the point where there is some sort of sustainable core on the roster you know, who those guys will be, we're still figuring it out, but he's trying to get it. So there is a sustainable core on the roster so that when they do get into position where they, you know, a big signing or two puts them in world series contention that when you move past that, you don't bottom out, you still have the players. You can be a 90 to 95 win team. Yeah. I'm totally on that line. This isn't like a total world series contending team, but you make a really good point about like the cornerstones, essentially. Like you have like, guys who are like in that position maybe to transition into it like you mentioned bogarts or maybe devers or uh any anyone in the minors could definitely be on that spot but i think ultimately the last two seasons have been about building their prospects because they gave a ton of them away with the moves that they were making you have mentioned bobby dahlback real quick i really see him as a real dark horse on this team to where this team goes because he looked really good at in a 2020 in that shortened season. And in the spring, he's doing really good so far. But I think one of those tiny questions to look at is between him and Michael Chavis, because yes. it's basically, that's basically kind of like you're starting first base position right there because Chavis tremendous year when he got called up at 19, then he got hurt and he hasn't been the same guy since. Now, if he doesn't make any kind of adjustment, then you're going to see Bobby Dahlbeck basically kick him to the curb, and he's going to say, I'm going to take your spot right there. So that's got to be something to watch out for. Does Dahlbeck start in the majors uh, for this year? Probably not, but he's probably he's going to get onto that major league roster eventually at some point. And I think he's going to be one of those consistent guys for the Red Sox that you watch for years to come. And you had mentioned the pitching. Uh, you also have to take into account the health of Richards, who they just signed, and Nathan Evaldi. Those guys have injury history 
And really it wasn't until like last year that we saw Avaldi go through a healthy season credit. It wasn't 162 game season, but those are the other two things I'm really watching for, for this team. Yeah. You, the Dalbert Chavis thing's interesting because when Chavis came up, right, he had a, a PED suspension in the minors. And then you kind of wonder how that's going to impact his game. And he comes up and he was hitting home runs a decent rate. He was striking out a ton and the Red Sox, because they like stupid analytics, are into that and three outcome baseball, right? But, you know, the whole concept was the strikeouts were going to go down and they haven't at the rate that they probably should. And again, you don't know because of the analytics. Like they, they might still like him because math is dumb and shouldn't be in sports. But, um, you know, if, if he's coming up, because he's going to be hitting probably six, seven, eight, right? If he's coming up with guys on base and striking out constantly, you know, Dabak at the very least is going to give you, he's going to put the ball in play. And they're going to need that. And then he's obviously more than just a guy who can put the ball in play. He can hit. Uh, I, you know, I like Dalbeck better as the option there than Chavis. You're right. He might not start right away. Um, the other thing is Chavis has some like weird versatility where he can also play second base in the, the corner outfield, even though he's not um, the best athlete. So, you know, Kike Hernandez stays on this, this tear and he's supposed to be a guy with some positional versatility, but if he becomes your everyday second baseman, and Marwin Gonzalez becomes an everyday outfielder. You kind of need that that joker off the bench who can kind of plug and play. And maybe, you know, Chavis has to come out of the starting lineup so he can fill that role. So th there, there's paths to it. I think that by the end of the year, uh, I would even say by the All-Star break, I think Bobby Dalvik is the team's first baseman. Yeah, I totally agree. And I think, I think reasonable expectations, like I mentioned last week, is probably a wild card berth if we're talking like max expectations of where this team can, do, can go. Because I think... Alex Cora being back in the dugout is going to help out a ton. I think you're going to see guys like Martinez really get back into sort of saying, oh, this is what it was like in those championship days. Credit all the pieces aren't there, and it's completely new from the past year or two, the way this roster looked. But I think Cora being back in the dugout helps out as well with his kind of leadership. Yeah, no, Core is going to be a huge thing. And Chitty Martinez has talked about how emotional he was when Core left. Devers has referred to him as like a father figure. Um, you know, you hope that some of those guys who took a step back last year, specifically those two, I just mentioned, like they had good, close, such close relationships with him. You hope that him being there because it's such a mental game is a mental boost and those guys can turn around because, you know, that was a huge problem last year. It, it's not necessarily that the roster was bad. It had its holes, but the guys you were supposed to count on didn't show up. And if JD comes back, if Devers comes back and those guys are, you know, slashing, you know, 290 average and they're, they each hit 30, 35 home runs, which is unrealistic. They're just already, aside from the addition, is going to be a better team. So the mental stuff, it's always a question mark. You never truly know how much of a difference it's going to make, but uh, you'd like to think that core being back is certainly going to help. Yeah. A lot of, a lot of expectations. We're still in the spring training. It could be a whole really different come April. Now, before I let you go, I want to give you a chance to plug some of your stuff. I mentioned the Calling It podcast, writer, producer on 98.5 The Sports Hub. Uh, for people who are listening and watching, where can people go to listen to your kind of content? Yep, uh, you can follow me on Twitter at RealAlexBarth. Read all my work, 98.5thesportshub.com. Um, I host the Call on the podcast, like you said, through CLNS Media. And I host Patriots Beat with Evan Lazar every Tuesday and Thursday. You can find that live stream. Come ask us questions. Um, right on my Twitter. All right. Well, Alex, thank you very much for joining the podcast and we wish you uh, nothing but the best for the future. Thanks for having me.
as always, to finish our show, we look at our LOL moment of the week. And we've got an athlete who's been doing a lot of off-season training, but not the kind of training that you would expect for someone in the NFL. So this week's LOL moment of the week will go to... Alvin Kamara, the running back for the New Orleans Saints. Now, this is kind of interesting. Most guys in the NFL offseason, they've got different regimen. Maybe they stay in the gym and they continue to work. Maybe they're running some passing routes or doing any kind of drills with other football organizations. But Alvin Kamara is not doing that. You know what he's doing? He's in Montana and he's learning how to snowboard. Okay, not only that, but if you've seen social media, he's only been learning how to snowboard for a few days in the great state of Montana, and he's already hitting rails and jumps. Like, really? First off, if you've ever learned how to snowboard, and I've got a couple siblings who did while we were in Canada, while we were kids, it is not easy. It's very hard to do. Like, we just, if you're, if you've ever skateboarded before, or you've learned how to skateboard, or at least tried it, it's really hard, especially for a snowboard, because you are locked in, and you've really got to shift your weight and your balance. It's very hard. It's very hard. And the Saints must have been on pins and needles when it was day one, and he wiped out on that mountain. He basically slid on his backside, turned over. That could have been huge. He could have lost the season right there. Obviously, he was completely okay. He laughed it off. But the Saints must have been incredibly scared to see Kamara take that wipeout and obviously they they would go to him and say listen you can't be doing this if they were really concerned Kamara's he's smart enough but it's not so much shocking that he's learning how to snowboard it's the fact that when you look at day two on his twitter page he's already like grinding rails and he's hitting jumps like already like that quick into learning how to snowboard? I mean, that's insane. And obviously, he might be the next athlete at the X Games, listening to and uh, seeing Sean White's response to seeing Kamara learn how to snowboard. But who knows? He actually might become the next big two-sport athlete. You know, you got Michael Jordan and Deion Sanders and Bo Jackson, who all went on baseball and then went to basketball. I should say the other way around. You have Michael Jordan, who went from basketball and took a couple of seasons in baseball, eventually came back to basketball. You have Dion Primetime Sanders. You got Bo Jackson, who were football and baseball players. This thing has never been done here. Kamara might be trying to be the first athlete to do football and snowboarding at the same time. Now, the way the schedule works is that unless the Saints don't get into the Super Bowl, Kamara would have plenty of time to get himself in the X Games because the winter X Games this past year took place at the end of January, and obviously the Saints got eliminated at the beginning of January in the divisional round. So if Kamara really wanted to be serious, all he's got to do is have the Saints not make the playoffs, and then he'll find himself in the in the super pipe competing with Sean White, or he could get himself in the slope style with all of those guys, if Kamara were really serious, but clearly this just looks like a lot of fun for Kamara, and I'm glad that he's having fun. You know, a lot of guys have different regimens for the offseason. 
If he wants to learn how to jump and grind on a snowboard, be all that. But just as long as he's safe and New Orleans, the Saints organization, is telling him just don't extremely hurt yourself because you are a key piece if we have Drew Brees retire. And speaking of Drew Brees, seeing him work out, just fueling more speculation about if he's coming back or if he's retiring. A lot of questions down there in that Saints organization. But until now, Alvin Kamara, you can continue to learn how to snowboard because you will continue to be our LOL moment of the week. So that will do it for this edition of Let Me Speak. Thank you very much for watching and for listening. Make sure you're dropping those likes, those comments, and make sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Just search Let Me Speak Podcast. And remember, as always, if you've got a point you got to get across, just tell the whole world, shut up and let me speak. <laughs>